0: Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Dr. Gary Yulikny, the President and CEO of the Shepherd Center. The Shepherd Center is a 152-bed, not-for-profit specialty hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. The center serves persons with spinal cord injuries, acquired brain injuries, and a variety of neuromuscular diseases. Services include intensive care, acute medical, acute rehabilitation, post-acute, and outpatient services. The Shepherd Center operates with a budget of over $190 million and over 1,400 employees. During Gary's 22-year tenure, the Shepherd Center was ranked one of the best rehabilitation hospitals in the nation for 14 years by U.S. News and World Report and is the largest hospital of its kind in the country. In this podcast, we talk about Gary's career, starting with his early interest in special education, his move into psychology, and ultimately into rehabilitative medicine with a detour early on as a commercial fisherman. I really enjoyed my conversation with Gary, and I think early careers can learn a lot from this wide range of conversation. I've produced two versions of this podcast, an extended version of the interview that includes our complete conversation and an abridged version. You are listening to the extended version. If you'd like to listen to the abridged version, please check our website for the link. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Don't forget to leave us feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you may be accessing this recording. Also, I'm excited to announce that we are now getting the podcast transcribed thanks to a financial gift from the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Thanks for listening,
1: and here is Gary Olickney.
0: Welcome to The Forge, Gary. Oh,
1: well, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, talking to you today.
0: You went to the University of North Carolina and you received a bachelor's in special education. What drew you to UNC and specifically why the interest in special education?
1: Well, I'll start with the special education part when um, when I was in high school. It's it, it's kind of a unique story how I got involved. Everybody, you know, most people have kind of defining moments in their life where they, you know, look at how it kind of shapes their future. I was in high school and i'd be walking through the the school either at my locker or doing something and one of the young men from the special education class would come up and poke me in the back and say bleep bleep and run off this is a true story okay. and you know a lot of people be turned off by that, but I was extremely curious. So I went to the special education teacher and I said, "You know, is there something I need to know? Is there something I need to be doing in this situation?" And I think she saw some of my interest. And so for my last two years in high school, I became the um, kind of student uh, resource or student assistant in her class wow. uh, for the special education class. And that's kind of what got me in- interested in special education.
0: Well, that's neat. I mean, a lot of young high school-aged men would not have had that response.
1: Yeah, and uh, so the way I got to to UNC was uh, I went on a football scholarship. Oh, okay. And the reason I chose UNC is at that time it was kind of interesting. This would have been in the um, late 60s, early 70s. There weren't near as many restrictions on the number of recruiting visits you could make. So now I think you can visit five schools – I think I missed 62 days of high school visiting wow. different colleges because you know I'd never really been out of my hometown, and so I, I knew I wanted to go to school that was academically a uh, high-integrity high school because I, at 205 pounds, I didn't have a whole lot of future in, the, in football. Okay. So uh, I had taken some trips, and I, in February, the week before I went to UNC, I went to Northwestern in in Chicago. Outside of Chicago and Evanston, and so I got off the plane. It was 13 below zero. I mean, the snow was blowing sideways, and I said, "Boy, this is a great school, but I don't think I want to put up with this." <laughs> so the the next weekend, I flew to Chapel Hill and got off the plane. It was 70 degrees, and it was just beautiful. And the the in February, the you know the flowers were coming out, and I just made a connection with that school and uh, ended up down there.
0: Wow. So tell us a little bit about your early career. Your, your first jobs out of college included being an education specialist uh, during the school year and working with people with developmental disabilities in the summer. Was this what yeah. your degree prepared you to do, and, and what was that work yeah, like?
1: Yeah, uh, and, and that kind of shapes the rest of my career, too, is that I had always been very, very interested in work. I, I knew I didn't want to work in public schools. And at that time, the, the kids with the most severe disabilities were in in state, you know, institutions. And so, you know, what I really kind of prepared to do was at that time they, you know, it was to work with those people who were severely and profoundly intellectually disabled. And the place to do that was in the state institutions. So my first job was really as a, a teacher in the local state institution working with the kids with these pretty severe disabilities. So it wasn't really teaching ABCs or or science or math, it was really focusing on some of the basic skills like toileting, eating, dressing, you know, uh, activities of daily living and those things. So I I knew I really wanted to do that. So that's kind of where I ended up
0: and you did that for a few years and then you went to Appalachian State University where you earned your masters
1: well a there was yeah, okay. yeah, there was a there was a, a kind of a low in between and okay. uh, and I think it's important to talk about that because it also shaped kind of my leadership skills and where I where I ended up is I, I at the end of a couple years in in the in working in the institution I realized that I wasn't going to change much about that. It became a very frustrating experience for me because, you know, I'd always wanted to do this so that I could improve the quality of life for these folks. And it was clear, given the bureaucracy of that, which is probably why we don't have many state institutions anymore. It was almost impossible to make those changes. So I kind of dropped out of that and stopped doing it. And basically for about a year and a half traveled around the United States, really, uh, just kind of, Taking odd jobs, went to move to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and went through California, New Mexico, different places. So about a year and a half, I spent on the road. A couple friends joined me for a certain period of time, and I uh, had an opportunity to kind of really reflect on what I wanted to do. So I moved back to Chapel Hill, and pretty much knew I didn't want to live there anymore. I'd been there, in, 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 and I took a map of North Carolina, and I. Uh, looked at the farthest place west, which is Murphy, North Carolina, and the farthest place east, which is a little island called Ocracoke, North Carolina, and I flipped a coin and ended up at Ocracoke and uh, went out there. And my dad had had a home improvement business, so I was always able to uh, pick up a job, always had carpentry tools in my truck. And so I went down there and stayed at the campground and started doing some carpentry work. And just kind of fell in love with the place and stayed there. So, you know, a lot of life decisions are made in either drunk or under
0: stress,
1: (laughs) (laughs) which I found to be historically true. Uh And so uh, several of us were sitting around one night and, uh, you know, we were lamenting that on this beautiful island that had these great waters and very, you know, good fishing grounds off there that the locals had really lost commercial fishing as a way of life you know they all were working on the ferries and the dredges that were there so three of us decided to open a fishing business so for the next four years i uh, was a commercial fisherman wow. and uh, it, it did that so the how i ended up at appalachian state was <laughs> under you know like i said you make most decisions either drunk or under stress so i got into it over a few beers and got out of it we were part of our fishing was we had to cut these gum trees out of the swamps up in Curry Tuck North Carolina and and actually you would actually sink those into the sound and they use those to tie your nets off so one day in August it's hot and I'm coming out of the swamp a Curry Tuck hauling a gum tree and uh, I got bit by a water moccasin oh. it was right by a tree it bit me right on the side of uh, kind of near uh, the side of my uh, belly there and so I had to go to the hospital get the anti venom and uh, had a chance to kind of reflect on whether that's what I wanted to do when I was fifty years old. Yeah, and uh, that's when I decided to go back to Appalachian State.
0: Wow, that's quite a that's quite a journey. Uh, um, yeah, uh, and and a, a coin flip included in that. I love that.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> you, 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 when you think about it, I mean, if you look back at your life and you say, "God, if I just would have done," I mean, the decision I made to go where to go to college, I had you know, 20 different offers to where to go.
0: Wow. I
1: mean, that really shaped the rest of my life. I mean, it, and it's kind of funny to, to if you look back and say, well, what if I had decided to go to Ohio State or Bowling Green or one of these other universities? You know, what would I be doing today? And, you know, those are often, you know, decisions that do shape your life.
0: Wow. So you had, I mean, you had spent a couple of years, it sounds like several years, really working with your hands kind of, you know, being out, working a very kind of traditional hands-on job, yeah. and and so how did you, and you kind of said, maybe I don't want to be doing this forever, the body gets tired, get tired of getting bitten right. by moccasins pretty quickly I imagine so so you did go back to Appalachian State and, and you kind of decided to return to special education at that point
1: Right uh, you know, what I was, you know, really interested was kind of rekindling that maybe in a different way, and I I chose Appalachian State because they had a program that was directly geared towards people with severe and profound disabilities, and they also had a relationship with Western Carolina Center, which was uh, at that time one of the most progressive state institutions in the country, and they had a couple there, uh, Jim and Judy Favel, who were really doing some kind of c- cutting-edge research as it related to how you would interact with that population. So. That's kind of what drew me to Appalachian State, that along with the fact that, you know, certainly was in-state tuition, which was uh, helpful for a guy that didn't have a whole lot of money uh, from the commercial fishing business.
0: Right. Did you get a chance to work with, with those folks that were...
1: Yes. The way I did it, my first year I spent on campus, and I took courses at, at the university there, and then the second year I spent my whole year down in Morganton, North Carolina, at the at the state institution, doing research and working with the fables, on which eventually led me then to University of Kansas.
0: Okay, so and you did that? Did you do? Did you go to University of Kansas immediately after you finished your master's? It looked like that yes, from your I CD. did.
1: I did. Okay. Well, well, what happened was that uh, you know about that time I'm getting around thirty two, thirty three years old, so. You know, that's a heck of a time to to begin your Ph.D. program. So right. I, 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 there were two things. One is um, the, the Western Carolina Center had a relationship with the University of Kansas, which has the largest behavioral psychology program in the country. And so there was a gentleman out there named Todd Risley who was, and the way the Kansas program worked at this point in my life, you know, I didn't want to spend eight years, you know, getting my PhD, so I, I wanted to pick some place that was going to give me the degree to put me in position to get jobs that I wanted, but at the same time to not pigeonhole me into you know a lot of classes that w- that were unnecessary and and really wouldn't contribute to to my future. So the great thing about the Kansas program is you you had three required courses, and then what you did is you sat down with your advisor and you built a a curriculum. you you had the whole university at kind of your, uh, in front of you, and you could choose different areas. And so what I chose was, I did quite a few courses in human development or behavioral psychology. I picked some courses from regular psychology, and then I also did some from the business school. So my emphasis really out there became more organizational behavior management.
0: Okay.
1: And that kind of ties back to you know, it, almost every job I've had, you know, I end up being in charge. I would ended up being in charge of something. from my first job, actually out of college, I walk into this state institution in North Carolina, and I'm the new teacher, and I have six people reporting to me. All you know, in their forties and fifties, who've been there for years, saying, "Oh God, here comes one of those another young whippersnappers," you know, right. and we'll just wait him out. Right. And so it it kind of always seemed like I was in a position where. I had to take at least some kind of leadership role. So uh, th- that kind of interested me as I went along in my career.
0: So um, this sounds like uh, I saw you. your focus was in organizational behavior. Uh, that is something of a shift away from the special education orientation you had before.
1: Well, yeah, yes and no, you okay. know, because you think about it is, you know, a lot of what we do with kids who, you know, have special needs is it's a lot of it is, you know, applied behavior analysis. Or behavior management techniques. And what fascinated me and where I really began to look at that in a broader way was my advisor, this guy Todd Risley, was really interested. You know, everybody knew you could take, and if you sat in a room with a uh, a young kid with intellectual needs, if you could control the reinforcers enough, you could get them to pretty much do what you wanted them to do. But could you do that with a larger group of people? And so what, what what we began to do when I went to Kansas was look at environmental effects on behavior, management system effects. For example, one of the things we did was we had a uh, an infant and toddler daycare center where we actually trained people with intellectual disabilities to be the caregivers. Oh, wow. And the way we did that is using some organizational behavior management tools such as, you know, effective feedback. We had checklists, quality checklists. We did regular quality checks. So as that began to sprout and grow, we began to look at could we do that with general populations? And, and then what would that look like if you really tried to adapt it to society in general? So, you know, we we evaluated things like uh, if you add the amount of the fine to a uh, handicapped parking space, will it deter parking? Instead of having just the traditional wheelchair thing up on the wall, if you say on there, no parking, $500 fine, will that that influence people's behavior? And we found that it did. And so, you know, we began to really, really look at, you know, behavior as, you know, as something. And then when you get down to it, leadership is just getting people to do what you want with a smile on your face. You know, I mean, <laughs> so those principles really, I think, carried over.
0: You mentioned that you went there, you went to Kansas with the idea that this would be a program that would help you to get the kind of jobs you would be looking for in the future. Were you looking at a research career at that point? Were you thinking, I want to do research, or were you thinking, I want to go back to the field and, and, and be some sort of practitioner?
1: Well, I... I, I I really wasn't sure. Okay. You know, at that point, I mean, I knew that I had a, a, a big interest in people with disability mm-hmm. and, you know, and it began to become much more general when I moved out to Kansas. I became involved with the Center on Independent Living, which really began to look at people with physical disabilities. and and other sensory disabilities. And so I knew I wanted to do something there. I did some research, but at the same time, we ran a couple businesses, successful businesses while we were out there. It kind of made some of my professors angry because I was making more money than they were. (laughs) But this guy, Todd Risley, had created this Center for Applied Behavior Analysis and what he called the Living Environments Group. And so we actually, as part of my work, ran several of the businesses, including the daycare centers and a few other things that we were involved in. So I really began to grow in that sense. And so I kind of moved away from more of the practitioner stuff, more into the research kind of organizational behavior management track.
0: Okay. So when you finished your program, this would have been in about 88?
1: Uh, No, it's 86. Wasn't it 86 or 87? Somewhere around there.
0: You went on. You stayed in Kansas, and you did a couple of jobs there. You were a research associate with the Bureau of Child Research, mm-hmm. as well as you were working with the Unified School District. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you were doing with those right. organizations.
1: Well, well, back in those days, one of the newest concepts was this idea of supported employment. Okay. And so I had a contract with the schools, and what supported employment was recognizing that there are some people with severe intellectual disabilities that are going to need ongoing support to be able to stay in in certain competitive environments. And so we created a program there that basically uh, created a job coaching type situation, and we were able to successfully employ uh, quite a few folks that, uh, not just with intellectual disabilities, but with physical disabilities and and, uh, other sensory disabilities in uh, different locations throughout the city as they were beginning to, like, come up through high school, mostly in their junior and senior year.
0: Wow. Oh. Now, I was going to ask you kind of about where you started learning your leadership skills, but it sounds like you've really kind of, right out of college, you were working in various leadership
1: roles. Right. And, and, and when I look back at that, you know, it, it, those those years that I took off where I was working in construction or fishing or just traveling around the country— I think those all help shape my, you know, my my leadership perspective because I think sometimes we think that, you know, when we take our first leadership job, that everybody's ready and they want to be led and they're motivated to be led, and all you got to do is say, "Let's go, guys!" and And, and what I learned was, uh, I think a very valuable lesson that people in different no, nobody's the same in terms of what motivates them to do their job and do it well. And so what I learned was that uh, there's a big difference between someone who has a job and somebody who has a career. And, you know, and as a healthcare administrator, I think you really need to understand that, you know, I can go to one of our physical therapists and say, look, we've got this extra project for you. We think it's going to be great. It's going to help you grow and they can't wait to do it. But if I go to the guy who cleans the floor and, and, say, hey, I got this extra project, you know, we got some more floor over here that we want you to clean. He's going to look like me like I'm crazy. So (laughs) it really kind of taught me about, you know, know, when you have a job, you know, you're trying to put food on the table for your family, survive, do those things. And and the things that are most meaningful are very different than when you have like a career. And I I think that kind of helped shape that and put that in perspective for me
0: so you you recognize that when you are dealing with individuals, and yeah okay
1: and and I also realized that you know a lot of the hard work's done not in the in the administrative suite it's done out there on the floors and uh you know the nurses and stuff like that, so it, you know it kind of really gave me that kind of bottom up perspective of of how things work i mean and it made me realize that you know i for a long time or, you know for all winter, I worked on a gallop boat off the coast of Florida. And, you know, and you, you look at that and you see the leadership management and you got a captain there and, you know, you got the crew and then the crew begins to develop different personalities. So when the captain's not there, this person automatically becomes the leader just because of their interactions with the rest of the crew. So I, I think it was very helpful from that perspective to understand the human behavior part of that and, and, and how people interact at a variety of different jobs.
0: So you left Kansas to go back to Georgia uh, yep. where you were the program director for learning services at the Peachtree regional campus from 1988 to 1990. What is learning services as an organization? What do they do?
1: Well, learning services was a, it was a, uh, it was a for-profit company out of uh, Massachusetts is founded by a guy named Dan Donovan and Dan, um, uh, it was interesting story how he started too. His his um, mother had a personal care home, and so Dan grew up in this personal care home where there were always like six or eight guys around, you know, who were renting rooms and you know were the clients there at the personal care home. And at that time, many of them had had traumatic brain injuries, and at that you know there were no, there was no programs for those folks. They were either in nursing homes or they ended up in personal care homes or in jail. You know at that time, a lot of the behavioral issues that go with the traumatic brain injury you know were considered to be criminal kinds of things. so the company Dan started the company to provide residential home based kind of all opportunities for people with brain injury and about the same time, maybe a year before I left Kansas, I started getting involved in you know this was kind of getting, again a part of the eclectic experience. I started doing an internship at the neurology department over at the KU Medical Center in in Kansas City and I started being exposed to a lot of people with cognitive disorders associated with different kinds of brain injuries whether they were acquired or traumatic and so I was approached by Learning Services to 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 be the program director of a a freestanding program and what intrigued me were a number of things one is they were really interested in translating applied behavior analysis to that population, that which really kind of piqued my interest. Two, it was a chance to move back to the part of the country where my wife and I were from and you know closer to our family. And three, they were paying me a pretty good salary to do that. So uh, all those things kind of came together, and then I took that position.
0: That's neat. You, you've used the phrase "applied behavior analysis" a couple of times. Could you explain what that means?
1: Well, applied behavior analysis is is, is be really the science of human behavior. It really looks at analyzing, you know, how you shape people's behavior through a variety of techniques. I mean, the people always think of B.F. Skinner and you know, operant conditioning. And, but there are lots of other strategies for using, you know, cues and, uh, and, re- and and reinforcers to kind of again shape people's behavior, whether it's on an individualized basis or whether it's on a group. So it really is a whole subset of psychology that's that's called applied behavior analysis. Okay. So
0: you had already started making a transition toward working with people with brain injuries. You, you said you were doing an internship back in Kansas when they found, uh, found you. Um, right. So how is working with people with, with acquired,
1: what's the right phrase? Um, acquired brain injury uh, good. How, how, yeah, how is, it? Yeah. Some of these folks would have been strokes. And
0: Okay. So how is it different to work with people with acquired brain injury versus people with congenital disability?
1: But here was the fascinating part, and the 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 difference really played into what I talked about earlier in terms of my advisor and his approach to using you know environmental cues and, and things in the environment to help shape behavior. If you think about it, if you take someone with an intellectual disability, they have a memory, and so if you use a lot of repetitive strategies, use the right reinforces. You can usually get that person to perform the behavior you want them to perform. But so in in applied behavior analysis, that's called the the ABC contingent, the you know the the trium, the triad. You have the antecedent, which is your cue. So if you want somebody to touch their nose or imitate you touch their nose, they do that the the behavior, and then the consequence after it, you know, kind of reinforces or shapes the behavior. But if you take that the, those three, that ABC triad, and you w- wipe out somebody who has no short-term memory, then reinforcers become almost useless. Okay. So w- what you had to do was really look at creating environments, and we still do this today with people with brain injury, that create enough structure that accuse them to behave the way you want. For example, if someone can't remember appointments, we now have phones that can alarm, uh, you know, so you can basically shape their environment to overcome some of the cognitive disabilities that they have. And and I just found that fascinating because it was exactly what, you know, my advisor was really interested in and what we've been trained to do. So I really wanted to explore that part of, you know, applied behavior analysis as it relates to someone who ha- doesn't have a whole lot of short-term memory or maybe what we call executive function uh, or somebody who's impulsive. I mean, you take somebody who's impulsive and they behave without even really thinking about that, you know, how do you control that kind of a behavior or how do you influence it and how do you shape it? And so I found that part fascinating.
0: That does sound fascinating. So in the role in your role as director and so you you stayed at learning services for about four years. You moved from being a program director. To a regional vice president and then to executive director. In that time, I'm assuming somewhere in that time you were uh, you began to supervise clinicians,
1: perhaps. Well, I mean, I that. was you know basically from day one in charge of the entire program. So, you know, I, I never really. G- g- got into the the day-to-day clinical kinds of aspects other than doing some research that I was involved in so it, it was really a leadership position and it was uh, I think I had about 70 employees at my first job at learning services and then it just expanded from there as I began to grow but it it was really a leadership position but it gave me an opportunity because I was in charge of marketing I was in charge of the the financial aspects of the program so it kind of broadened my, um, uh, I guess, my management skills and my management, you know, uh, flow or whatever, what everything I had to look at. Sure. But uh, uh, that kind of shaped, you know, that where I went from there because it really was I was the CEO of that program.
0: The question I wanted to ask you was, as a as a more administrative oriented person, how do you establish how do you establish credibility with with more clinically oriented colleagues?
1: Yeah. Well, the fact that I was a psychologist kind of got my foot in the door. You know, I got my foot in the door that, okay, this guy's not an MBA. Right. He's not a MHA. He is, you know, he's, he's, even though I, I, you know, I had very little background in terms of actually clinically working with people with brain injury. You know, I understood uh, what clinicians did, and so I had a little bit of credibility there. And and the other thing is, I learned a long time ago that that's not my job to tell them how to be a good clinician. My job is to make their job easier so that we can provide the most effective treatment we can to these individuals. So... You know, I I learned uh, many years ago, never meddle in the clinical aspects of (laughs) of what happens. So uh, hire good people, you know, turn them loose and let them do what they do and kind of uh, uh, make sure that uh, their values and uh, their goals are aligned with what mine were.
0: So you left Learning Services to become the Administrative Director for Rehabilitation Services in the Wake Hospital system in 1992. What did, yep. why did you leave Learning Services and, and what was the opportunity at Wake Hospital that you, you went looking for?
1: Well, learning services was beginning to grow and uh I think they were going in a direction that uh that didn't appeal to me. I mean it it had always started based on Dan Donovan's family experience and, and you know, I and I really kind of linked on to that. Dan I mean he was an attorney who really decided that uh, I don't want to do this. I want to do something to improve the quality of life for people with brain injuries. And so he started this company with that in mind. And they, at the end of my time there, they became somewhat corporate. And, you know, I think they thought they were much more important than they really were in the grand scheme of things. And so I kind of, you know, Didn't really connect with that, and so had an opportunity to take over what was a fairly new program over at Wake Medical Center where I would be in charge of all their rehabilitation services within the whole hospital system.
0: And what were rehabilitation services? What was what was included in that? What kind of patients? Well, did these you take were out? more
1: acute, so okay. uh, it, and it was an opportunity for me to move kind of up the continuum. You know, learning services are really a post-acute, post acute post post acute program. So, uh, if you think about you know where where we were, we were we would get people with learning services who had already been to the hospital. Um, many had uh, them had been at other programs, and then they came to learning services. Whereas this was an opportunity to really look at what happened to these individuals from the point of injury because we're a level one trauma center. So it was an opportunity not only to shape the rehab part of the continuum, but I did a lot of work in terms of making sure that there was a physiatry consult you know, as soon as that individual was in the, out of the trauma center and, and stabilized. So uh, for me, it was a great opportunity to look at, it, at expanding the continuum of care and my understanding personally of of what happens at the more acute level.
0: So, how did the rehabilitation? How does rehabilitation services, and in particular in a hospital like Wake Wake, like Wake Hospital, fit into kind of the, as you were saying, the continuum of care? When does someone come to to the rehabilitation services side?
1: So we yeah uh, the continuum of care there typically would you know, be someone be in a car wreck they'd triage to the emergency room they'd go into the trauma center be stabilized either go maybe to a step down ICU or directly depending upon how stable they were out to an acute rehabilitation program which is an inpatient we had 68 beds at that time at Wake Medical Center that were designated just to rehabilitation then they might move to a more of a day program setting, outpatient, and even home health kinds of services.
0: Okay. What were your responsibilities at Wake? What what did it mean to be the administrative director? How many people were you reporting were reporting to you?
1: Oh, yeah. I probably had uh, around 350 to 400 people reporting to me wow. because I was in charge of not only the the inpatient rehabilitation hospital, the outpatient services, the but also had the acute therapists who would go like work. Maybe there's a patient who gets a joint replacement who needs a couple hours of physical therapy. All those folks reported to me as well. Okay. Um, and also our wellness, our wellness Center, which was a fairly large uh, program as well.
0: So you you left Wake in 1994 and came to the Shepherd Center to be the president and CEO, and you've been there since. Um, how did the opportunity to come to Shepherd Center come about?
1: Well, you know, I got called by a search firm. And, I, you know, I'd been in the Atlanta area before with Learning Services, so I knew some of the players there. And got called by a search firm, and they said, "Well, we have this great opportunity at Shepherd Center. We'd like you to come down and and be interviewed." And I, um, you know, I said no first. Uh, you know, I really had no interest in leaving. My wife's family was close by. We were very happy. You know, I'd gone to UNC, so I was close to the university. So, um, I said no. So they they called back about three weeks later and said, "Just come down and take a look." <laughs> so. I said, "Well, okay, we'll take a trip to Atlanta." So uh, I came down to Atlanta and w- went through the center and talked to some people, and it just was a perfect fit for me. And yeah, no real, you know, desire to move to Atlanta or do this, but when I when I saw the Shepherd Center, and it goes back to what I talked to you about making that personal connection. You know, yeah. just like Learning Service was founded by a guy who had a personal experience with traumatic brain injury. The you know the Shepherd Center was founded um, by the Shepherd family. James Shepherd, who is the chairman of our board today, was injured in a body surfing accident. Came back to the United States. had a was a C6 quadriplegic. Went out to Craig Hospital in Denver, which at that time was the only hospital in the country that really specialized in spinal cord injury. Spent some time out there. Came back, and when he left there, he was walking with a, a brace, a crutch. Family came back and, you know, many families, when they have a catastrophic event, say, well, we should do something, you know. And they, you know, they kept talking with friends, well, there ought to be something in Atlanta. And so they opened this as four beds in a local hospital, and now it's grown to the largest hospital of its kind in the United States, 152 beds. So,
0: Wow. Um, what would you say were the skills and experiences that made you the right candidate to take on the CEO job at the time that you were hired?
1: Well, you know, I think my pers- one of my personality and one, you know, I don't have a real big ego, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the the great thing about this hospital is the story's not about the CEO, it's about the Shepherd family's experience, and that really plays into our fundraising efforts. So, you know, it didn't bother me that, you know, that I w- my, it wouldn't be my picture on the front page of the newspaper or the magazine or winning awards, it would be James Shepard or his mother, Alana, who is very active in the Atlanta community. But what really intrigued me was two things. One, the opportunity to have almost like a little laboratory. You know, at that time, we were a 100-bed hospital. I think we had 700 employees. It was a great opportunity to take some of the things that I'd done in the past and kind of overlay those on this, this great little place that I had total control of. You know, in the, in the large hospital system, you I mean, I would write these proposals and things would go up to the CEO. And, you know, two months later, they'd say no. And, you know, so I finally told the CEO at Wake Medical Center, I said, look, if you're going to say no, tell me day two, and then I can start working on the next proposal. <laughs> but but Shepard was this great opportunity to really kind of make a difference, I thought. I loved the family influence, you know, the fact that here was these family values that it kind of um, – Really, kind of embedded, were embedded into the culture of the place, and uh, uh, so that was very intriguing. The second thing was, I asked—I was the only candidate that asked for—I asked, pick randomly, pick ten employees, and give me two hours in a room with them. And in that two hours, I learned more. You know, everybody was telling me what a great place it was, and you know, this—you you, know—you go love it here. And, and but that two hours with those ten front-line employees. There gave me a really insight into what the center needed, uh, and and it seemed that my skills were very, they they wanted somebody who was approachable and somebody who was you know out there. And one of the things I learned a long time ago is uh, this is kind of a, a great story that at Wake Medical Center, all the the VPs and the direct administrative directors would every third Friday, I think at two o'clock or so, we would tour the hospital. Okay. And, you know, we'd, we'd all tour and go to all the units and in our little suits and ties. We're all guys, so I, I think I can say this. They called us, they nicknamed us the Penis Patrol. <laughs> and so we would, uh, that's what all the staff
0: called Right, sure.
1: so And then we'd go back to the boardroom, and the, the CEO would say, God, everything looks great. And, you know, all of us are going, it's the third Friday of the month at 2 o'clock. Of course everything looks great. So uh-huh. I learned then that you know, that the, the the more you're out there, the the closer you are, the more you can desensitize the people to your presence. And if you can desensitize people to your presence, they'll tell you what they really think. Yeah. And you'll be able to glean so much more information than them knowing that, okay, two o'clock, they're going to show up, let's have everybody tidy everything up. And if they ask us how things are going, we're going to say, oh, they're going great. So, you know, that by which started me on you know kind of understanding the the importance of rounding not necessarily rounding for just to go out there and ask people how things are going but really spending quality time with people out in the organization and what that allows me and it's a very selfish reason is to keep a i think a stronger finger on the pulse of the organization so that you know I know I can sense when we don't have enough staff or when there's something going on in the organization. So it allows me I think to get a lot more honest and better feedback from those people out there on the floor.
0: Are you still able to do that as CEO?
1: Always, yeah, always. You know, and that's one of the things that we've learned as kind of an organization, you know, we're kind of moving far a little bit far ahead and I'll talk a little bit later about, you know, as as we stay here at Shepherd how we kind of really Kind of changed the culture and, and, and really kind of tried to make some of those things that we talk about, like rounding for outcomes and some of the other areas, really kind of embedded in, into what we do here.
0: I mean, that's, a, that's become kind of a popular tool today with, uh, I, I've heard it called Gemba Walks. Is it kind of along those lines? Are you familiar with that? Well, yeah. Me?
1: Have, you any read, have you read any of Quint Studer stuff?
0: Uh, familiar with the name, but have not read his
1: work. Yeah, you need to to do that, because basically, well, what happened to us as a management team? Well, I came, and again, you know, I I really felt like it was a great fit, that, you know, I I have a weird sense of humor. This place has a weird sense of humor, and I think I'm not your traditional kind of uh, go-to-the-rotary-club-hospital-administrator kind of CEO. I have a rule that I don't go to any meetings where more than 50% of the people don't know who Jerry Garcia is. So that rules out a lot of the local Rotary clubs and Lions clubs and things here that I don't have to go to. So, you know, our management team, we, we, you know, we, as we evolved and began to look at this, we read that book, Good to Great. I'm sure you've read that. Yeah. And, And it was a kind of a defining moment. So two things happened to us. One, we read that book and we all realized that, you know, leadership and management really isn't necessarily inspiration. You know, a lot of leaders think, okay, I'll do this quarterly talk and I'll tell them how great we are and tell them we need to get out there and work harder and, you know, like General Patton, run into the bullets and if you die, then it's for a good cause. So we realized that that wasn't necessarily the most, you know, it works for a short period of time, but it's not the thing that's going to hardwire, you know, uh, excellence into your organization. So you know, we at about the same time we stumbled upon this book by a guy named Quint Studer. And it's called "Hardwiring Excellence." And what Quint did—he's a very interesting guy out of Pensacola, Florida. What Quint did was he t- looked at the literature that was out there, and most of it came from organizational behavior management kind of literature. And he pack—he didn't invent it, he- but he packaged it in a way that made it very, very easy to communicate. To a wide variety of people, you know, one of the biggest problems with healthcare institutions is you you have what our staff call the flavor of the month. You know that okay, we got a new customer service program. It's called What's It or Zam or Wow, and people, you know, they change so much that it becomes almost like a joke. It's like the boy who cried wolf. We right. wanted something that could that we felt could last. So what Quint did was he understood that. You're only as good as it, it, customer satisfaction is directly related to employee satisfaction. That if you don't have satisfied employees out there who are who have bought into to the culture that you're doing, you know that you're trying to create, then you're not going to be successful. Because you know nobody ever says what a great CEO you have on a the, the customer satisfaction survey. You know it's about those people that touch them. And so uh, we uh, we took Quint's book, and he has a big. A consulting company, and he's a good friend of mine now, oh. uh, and uh, he's mad at us because we never gave him any money to do consulting. We just bought his books, <laughs> but we took some of those premises and some of the things that we knew, and we we just said, okay, these are the things that work. We're going to do them. We're going to be disciplined enough to do them, and we're going to uh, you know, do the do more of them, and rounding was a big part of that. What Quint says is rounding for outcomes, where you know, the first question you ask is, what's working well? You know, you, you don't, and then what can I do? You know, uh, what what do we need to do to improve? Is there anything you need? And so what you you get is you get this great flow of information that then cycles back into an opportunity for you to then reinforce certain behaviors. So, it, you know, it's it, we work very, very hard at trying to create a culture that really kind of focuses on How do we catch people doing the right thing instead of punishing them for doing the wrong thing?
0: Okay. Can you give an example of where that's worked for you?
1: Well, uh, you know, I mean, uh, when we started our first employee satisfaction survey in 1995, right a year after I came, we were at 62%. Last year, we were at 96%. Wow. So, I mean, you know, that translates into our outcomes, in terms of our overall customer satisfaction, which is in the 95th percentile. So, you know, I mean, we tried to make sure that, you know, it's very important. A lot of people start different programs, but they never measure their effect. You know, so the research part part of me said, you know, if we're going to do this, we're going to make sure that we do pre- and post-measures to see where we're at after we put all this effort into trying to make this happen. So we've created what we call a culture of excellence. Every um, uh, manager goes through hardwiring excellence. Uh, our own internal training program. We've adapted a little bit and changed it from some of what Quint does. But um, we, you know, the essence of it is change. You know, healthcare is generally the management style in healthcare is generally negative, especially in mm-hmm. nursing. You know, a nurse makes an error and somebody writes them up. You know, what about, you know, uh, you know, I, I I saw a nurse one day and she was crying and I said, what happened? She said, well, I gave the medication at the wrong time. And I said, well, what happened? She said, well, they wrote me up. You know, they your disciplinary action. And I said, okay. I said, how many times in your career have you given the medication correctly? And she said thousands. And I said, anybody ever come up and said, thank you for giving the thousand doses? And the answer was no. And so we wanted to tilt that table in the favor of you know let's focus on because what i'd learned from my applied behavior analysis background is you know positive reinforcement is infinitely more powerful than punishment
0: let me let me pause our, your thought process here for a second let's let's talk a little bit about the shepherd center mission and kind of give 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 us a okay. sense of what what is the shepherd center how big is it um, Kind of, And what kind of care do you deliver there?
1: Okay. It's, it's a, a very unique hospital. It's a 152-bed hospital that treats primarily people with uh, spinal cord injuries, brain injury, acquired brain injuries, multiple sclerosis, uh, and other neuromuscular disorders like Guillain-Barre. But mostly it revolves around, uh, at least on the spinal cord injury side, some kind of paralysis. And um, it's a unique hospital in that it's basically a specialty hospital designed to provide, be a one-stop shop. You know, a lot of hospitals, the way they grew was, okay, we're going to add uh, obstetrics, so we're going to add open-heart surgery. Our strategy was we were going to really kind of develop in a more vertical way by saying, okay, what do, does this small niche of patients need to get from the point of injury to a return to their community. And so our continuum of care includes a 10-bed ICU, uh, which is very unusual because we're licensed as an LTAC. And for the only reason is that that's the only category we even fit in. So we would have a 10-bed ICU. We have a, a medical surgical floor for complications. Then we have inpatient rehabilitation. We have a day program. We have an off-site uh, uh, post-acute brain injury program, similar to like a learning services type program, and then we have return to home services, and then we have follow-up services on top of that. So it's really kind of a one-stop shop. Within that, we have our own urology department. We have our neurosurgeons. We we are connected to Piedmont Hospital, which is right next door in Metro Atlanta, and so we basically do our surgeries, our physicians, we contract with them for surgi- surgery time, and so our folks do the surgeries over there. So it's really a, kind of a unique place. The mission really is to get people home as independently as possible who've been catastrophically injured. So these are people who, you know, are in life and death situations that we uh, are, uh, you know, our mission is to, you know, get them back and get them engaged in their community, whether that's through employment or recreation or a variety of other things.
0: And how do people? How do patients come to Shepherd? I'm assuming you don't come directly from injury to Shepherd, typically.
1: Well, you can. I mean, okay. you can be triaged. You know, there's several small rural hospitals that will send the person up the next day okay. of injury, as long as they're stabilized and can be transported. We can take them fairly quickly. Okay.
0: So it's the ICU. And-
1: but you would typically be triaged in emergency room. A lot of times now, because of the economics of healthcare. The trauma center, would, they would do the surgery there, and then they would stabilize that patient and then send them to us. How, but we're, most of our referrals are from either physicians or other hospitals. Uh, you know, we've been around 42 years, so we've developed a, a bit of a reputation for treating, you know, the most complex cases in this, in this space.
0: And uh, so along that line, how far away do patients come for your services?
1: Last year, we had people from 42 states and, uh, I think, 12 foreign countries. Wow. We are Um, a national and somewhat of an international provider.
0: And you mentioned you have several locations.
1: Well, we just have a couple, really. I I mean, they're both here. Okay. Uh, One would be our main campus. Okay. Then um, we have a post-acute brain injury program that's two or three miles from here. That includes a residential component. And it's more really trying to get people with brain injury away from the hospital setting and get them more in the community to do the the actual rehabilitation. And then across the street, we have a program, what we call the SHARE Military Initiative. And it's a program where we serve our wounded warriors who come back from both Afghanistan and Iraq or other kinds of battles with traumatic brain injuries, post-traumatic stress disorder. And we've been doing that for about seven years now.
0: What's the? How many physicians do you have on staff, and what's the relationship between the center and the physicians? Are they typically are they part of an employed physician group, or how does that
1: work? Well, we have a variety of different arrangements. We have, um, I think, we have eighteen employed physicians who are attending physicians, and they would be the ones who who basically are our employees who would uh, do most of the rehabilitation, and they they typically divide it up as. A big portion of those are uh, physical medicine and rehabilitation docs, physiatrists, who each have teams. Then we have three neurologists who run our MS program, which is the largest MS center in the Southeastern United States. And then we have two pulmonology intensivists who um, supervise our our, um, ICU. Then we have a variety, probably over 100, 150 consulting physicians, which is why it's so good to be connected to a tertiary care hospital. So they simply have to come through the tunnel then and, and they're able to treat our folks because our folks may have, you know, GI issues. They may have uh, orthopedic issues. Uh, some may have cancer. You know, I mean, it's just a variety of things that we need to uh, to be able to treat.
0: You have a research background personally, um, and I saw that you, you also, the Shepherd Center, is involved in, in ongoing research projects? What kind of research uh, goes on at, at
1: Shepard? Well, the, the basic um, fundamental philosophy of our research department is it has to be something that will ultimately improve the quality of life for the people that we serve. We don't do a lot of esoteric research to ask questions that really don't matter. But we have a range of research. We probably have, oh, I think now we have almost 90 people in our research department And, for example, we run the range of we were the first hospital in the United States to put embryonic stem cells in a person with spinal cord injury. So we run from that level all the way to things like understand the effects of peer support, which is, you know, pairing a person with a disability with someone who's had a disability to readmission rates to the hospital. So, you know, it runs the gamut across a variety of clinical trials, trials, uh, a variety of uh, medical devices, those kinds of things. But it's a, it's a fairly well-developed um, program, and I think uh, we have extra mural funding at about $8 million a year.
0: It, speaking of, of dollars, how, how does financing work on the rehabilitation side? Who are your major payers?
1: Well, for us, it's, uh, it's mostly commercial insurance because our average age is 40. Okay. So um, Medicare is not a huge payer. The, the Medicare business that we do, uh, Medicare and Medicaid are about 25% of our business. Um, the only Medicare patients we would see would be those patients who leave. And, you know, someone with a severe disability goes on to Medicaid. If they can't go back to work, they go on to Medicaid for two years and then they transfer over to Medicare if they have a secondary complication like skin or whatever our our medical surgical floor bladder augmentations other things can serve them so the breakdowns about 25 then you know that makes up about probably 8 or 9% of of the patients that we see it's not a large amount and then our biggest issue is medicaid and you know that's changed a little bit with the ACA and you know the the health insurance exchanges but you know we get a lot of people who have no insurance so that they come to us with no insurance and then they become medicaid eligible by basis of their disability about 20 percent of what we do is workers compensation injuries then the rest would be a uh, commercial insurance
0: okay how long is the average stay
1: well the average length of stay for the whole hospital is about 42 days hmm. uh by if you break that down by disability the Uh, For someone with a brain injury, it's about 28 to 30 days, where they would stay inpatient, and then they might go six to eight weeks to our day program or a post-acute program. On the spinal cord injury side, depending upon the level of injury for someone who's a paraplegic, maybe about the same, 30, and then another six to eight weeks in our day program. Now, someone who's a higher level injury, like a cervical injury, they might stay as long as two months, maybe even three months.
0: We talked a little bit about kind of the, the departmental structure of your organization, but in terms of service lines, what are the broad? Uh, how would you divide up the kind of broad kinds of services that that Shepherd provides?
1: Well, you know, when I came, uh, oh gosh, now twenty two years ago, we had thirty eight department heads, and and I think we had about seventy patients in that day. So, you know, I mean, it was a typical traditional way healthcare had grown is most healthcare organizations grow horizontally. And to me that, you know, it reminds me of that old telephone game, you know, where you sit in a circle and someone tells something and then you laugh when it gets to the end, Right. you know, and it's totally different. Well, I just felt like, you know, information needed to go more vertically than horizontally. And so we changed when I came, we changed to a product line kind of service line kind of mentality where we have three major service lines now. One is the brain injury program, one is uh, the um, uh, spinal cord injury program, and then all of our outpatient services. So we really uh, huddled under those three. And w- w- I'm a big firm believer in, you know, the fewer managers you got, got, you know, the better off, you know, you're going to have more people. And so we may have, for example, the head of our Spinal cord injury program is a physical therapist who's a good leader and a good manager and but she also has the nurses report directly through her as well. So everybody in that program reports up through one area so that um it, it, I just think it makes communication a lot easier.
0: So talking about reporting, who who makes up your executive team?
1: Uh, by position, Well, we kind position. of flattened that. You know, we used to have we do have vice presidents and we do have directors and So we have a senior management team, really, that's about 12, 13 people right now. And we didn't change the titles, but we we used to have an executive team that met once a month or twice a month. And then we had a senior management team, which would be the rest of the directors. And what we found was we were talking about the same thing at both meetings. So it kind of became redundant. So we kind of flattened it so that we have a senior management team now. Uh, and, And while there are some reporting relationships, um, information flow really just goes out to that group, and so who would I'm responsible for the entire organization? We have a VP of Clinical Services who handles most of the clinical services, and she's only done that for about five years. I used to do both. I used to be kind of the COO and the CEO, and but it became as we grew, it became a little overwhelming. And um, so the primary people that report to me are our marketing department, research. Our foundation, we have a very large foundation. We raise quite a bit of money a year, every year, which is due to the generosity of our community. I also have uh, all the facilities report to me. And then the VP of Clinical Services really has most of the clinical areas. And Human Resources reports up through me, as well as our CFO.
0: So in the time that you've been there, the, the organization has grown quite a bit. And you were talking about how you were you've, you've restructured uh, the organization to be flatter, you know, to have fewer managers. So, talking about strategy and kind of how that relates to the decisions you made about about growth uh, in your time. So, I mean, you it looks like when you arrived, it was about an eighty bed facility, maybe, and now you're up yeah to somewhere about, on there about and now you're up to about one hundred and fifty beds. There's a number of you made a number of decisions to expand and and uh, to establish other programs. How do you go about making those decisions? Uh, you know what goes well, into that decision process?
1: Well, you know, as an administrator, you're faced with this. Was back in gosh, 1994, 95, right post DRGs. The big buzzword was you know we have to cut costs, which it always is in healthcare. Right. And reimbursements were were pretty much flat at that point and. And you can really make a couple of decisions. You can say, okay, we're going to just cut costs and, you know, and, okay, try to survive under these reimbursement payments, or you can grow. And we felt that uh, there was a huge need. For example, when I came, we just did spinal cord injury. But there's this huge population of people with brain injury that need very similar services. So we opened the brain injury unit, which has now become as large as our spinal cord injury service. So we made the 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 um, decision as a team that we were going to focus on growth and that there was a need, and we felt like that if we provided a high-quality product at a reasonable cost, people would come, and, and that's been the case so far.
0: How do you go about making a capital expenditure, like deciding we're going to build a new building, um... Well, we're going to expand a product line, something along those lines?
1: Well, it all goes back to doing a business plan. I mean, you have to do an effective business plan. I mean, you have to document, one, that the need is there, two, that you're going to get paid for it, and three, that you can create a high-quality service and, and, you know, make some money by doing that. So, you know... it's all data driven. You know, I'm a, I'm a behavioral psychologist. If I can't see it, feel it or touch it. So we make those decisions, but there are some points where you just kind of have to, you know, there's this instinct and people call it instinct, but what it is, is it's learned experience that, you know, you made these decisions in the past and they've shaped your ability to make them today. And so you just make a decision, but, you know, we based each of these decisions because, you know, our last, Capital project at our 25th anniversary was, I think it was a 90 million dollar project where we, had, we substantially increased the, the size of our footprint. So,
0: how have these expansions changed the culture? So this is a we you've talked quite a bit about culture and how you have tried to nurture it. How did making those decisions to expand so significantly affect the culture, and how did you make sure that the culture? was sustained and nurtured in the way that you wanted it to be even as you added on. You must have added on many, many more staff members to do all this.
1: Well when I came we had like I said around I think it was six hundred or it, somewhere around there and we now have twelve hundred so we've doubled our staff. But it makes it so much harder. I mean it makes the senior management you I mean it means you really, really have to embrace those those you know must do kinds of things that we felt were really important like rounding like recognizing employees and and you really had to embed that in the culture you know the 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 ultimate success of any good culture is when you don't need management when the right. employees look at each other and say they self police you know we we don't do it that way here <laughs> you're not going to uh-huh. stay here if you do do it. And so what we really focus on is driving that culture down to we want the guy who cleans the floor to be to understand what our culture is. And so it's been really kind of but that was on our mind every time we grew. We just said, you know, how are we going to maintain because we walked the line where when I came we were like 48 million gross revenue. Now we're 200 and this year I think we'll do 210 million. And so we, and yet you know, we have that family experience overlaid on this. So we're constantly walking that line of being a $200 million organization that's based on some family values that we really want to protect. So that was huge on us. And we really had to program for that and really had to make sure that the the culture was something that could be translated to a larger size.
0: So you've been at Shepherd, and you've been leading the organization for some 22 years now. How has your Strategy process. So, the way you look at look into the future um, and make projections and make decisions about how the organization is going to go. How has that evolved and, and how do you go about thinking about that now?
1: Well, you know, I, I think that the biggest thing is understanding that in, healthcare is probably the least data driven business in the United States. If you look at how healthcare evolves in many cases it's fads take for example years ago when all the you know, one hospital system started buying physician practices and so everybody felt like they needed to own the physicians and then they realized if you buy these docs you got to pay them more you got to overlay all these really rich hospital benefits to all their employees and i remember going to a um a seminar on physician reimbursement at the Cleveland Clinic, and their goal was to only lose $8 million over their physician practice. So I think what we've really – what I've learned is you can't jump into the water until you really understand that how deep it is. It's like uh, this whole thing now with population health. I mean, you know, everybody's throwing out this this thing, population health. We're going to help you do this. And I think what people don't understand is that – to really do population health, you have to influence individual behavior. For example, you can, okay, I can put all the incentives in the world in place to get a diabetic to take his medication on time, but I can't control the fact that he's washing down that medication with a box full of Twinkies. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, how are, how are we as hospitals equipped to influence that kind of behavior. And so I think people jump into this before they really realize the complexity of it. Yeah. So what I've learned over the last 20-some years is is don't be the first responder, but don't be the last. You know, we kind of have a joke here that if we're a train, we want to be somewhere maybe four cars from the caboose. You know, we don't want to be the first guy up there because – you know, I mean, look how many health systems got into the insurance business and three years later are out of the insurance business, but yet they put millions and millions of dollars into infrastructure. So, you know, for us, and our challenge is quite different. I mean, you know, here we are, a 152-bed standalone hospital that serves people from all over the United States in a world that's moving towards regional and local ACOs. You know, how how are we going to be able to break into every ACO that Sends us referrals. So, uh-huh. but, but essentially, the, that 22 years has given me the experience to say, be tempered, look at data, you know, try to make informed decisions and, and, and strategic decisions. And again, instead of putting the infrastructure into something, try to prepare more for, okay, if-then kind of relationships. So if the world goes like this, then what do we do as an organization to respond? And so that's kind of been more of our strategy.
0: How has health reform, as you mentioned the ACA, how has all that affected your business?
1: It hasn't. It, it, okay. To this point, it really hasn't affected it that much. Okay. I mean, we've we're busier than we've been. In fact, we unfortunately we've got a waiting list right now of patients. We're trying to look at developing some more beds as soon as we free up some space. It really hasn't affected what we do yet you know there was this anticipation that you were going to see all these narrow networks and that people weren't going to be able to be to leave certain systems but uh, we haven't really seen a whole lot of that effect yet
0: okay so staying with the strategy at the strategic level how do you interact with your board
1: well our board has to be our strategic partner you know, uh, w- one of the things that you have to make clear and that I've worked hard over the last 22 years is the board understanding what their role is. You know, the last thing you want the board doing is managing your organization um, because most of them don't really understand health care. And so what we've worked really hard at is what are the things that are really important to the board, and that is – yeah, so our strategy is not, uh, okay, let's bring all the board in, go make a retreat, and have them come up with a strategic plan. I mean, that doesn't make sense because most of these guys are in the insurance business or some other business that's totally unrelated to health care. So what we do is we pick selected board members. We develop, you know, what our strategic objectives are, and then we vet them to the board and say, what do you think? Does this make sense? Here's how we came to this conclusion from your experience as a business person or as a civic leader or whatever do, does this make sense to you the other thing we've done is we've really embedded them in the quality process of our organization um, we have a quality committee that uh, that's made up of board members and a variety of other folks and and they actually do the physical quality rounds of the organization where they go through the center with a checklist and they do the quality rounds of the center. And we did that because we wanted them to understand the complexity of a healthcare organization. Because you have so many boards that, okay, if you feed up to them, okay, we had a medical error and here's what happened. They freak out. You know, they say, oh my God, how could that happen? How could that possibly happen? So we wanted our board to understand that, you know, that there may be 20 steps in the process that could have gone right or gone wrong that can lead to a medical error. And so we wanted to embed them in the middle of that. So there's nothing, and we wanted to do that totally transparently. So we really wanted the board to be involved in that because our strategy really is focused around, you know, quality, you know, that we want to be the best in the world at what we do. And I guess, you know, if 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 you do that and you do it at a reasonable cost and you can't survive, then, you know, it's probably time to go do something else.
0: Speaking of quality, does Shepherd have a principal quality improvement methodology that you've embraced?
1: Yes, you know we use, but what we've gone to is more of a you know we kind of run like a lean organization. We don't really call it lean six sigma, but we what we have are we've hired three. There's a kind of emerging feel in healthcare now of uh, these healthcare process improvement folks and Georgia Tech has a very innovative and unique program here in Georgia. So we actually have in our quality department three of those young folks who who what they do is they really look at our processes with a fresh pair of eyes cuz none of them really have, you know, long clinical histories in healthcare and and help us to really understand how we can improve that. So we've tried to really you know, empiricize that to make it a, you know, really a measurable kind of thing. But we use Lean Six Sigma techniques. We use a lot of process improvement. We don't have a flashy name for what we do because it's all the same. Again, if you go back and you look at all of those process improvements about, you know, identifying a problem, measuring and looking at the process, identifying a fix, measuring it again, and then measuring it at intervals after to make sure that it stays in place, what you fix. So, you know, it's not rocket science. A lot of people make, especially consultants, make it out to be rocket science.
0: (laughs) Uh, So how does somebody come to be on the board?
1: Well, we have a nominating committee, and the nominating committee basically takes nominations and actually actively goes out and seeks people. Then that comes back to the board, and we, we you know we've really tried to shape our board in a different way you know initially a lot of our board were like friends of the shepherd family and uh people who were donors to the organization who we wanted to reward for their service and their support of the organization about oh, 15 12 years ago 15 years ago we spun off a separate foundation board and that board really is uh the its own 501 501- the foundation is at the serves at the sole whim of the hospital to raise funds to support it, but they, they primarily do the fundraising. And we've really tried to shape our board into a little more of a strategic board by bringing business leaders and you know folks who other healthcare leaders who, who can help us to kind of look at the world and and make key decisions.
0: One of the areas I'm interested in is is kind of talent management and leadership development. Uh, where do you expect to get the next generation of senior leaders for, for Shepard? What kind of leadership development program do you have there?
1: Well, we have a, a, a fairly intensive one. In fact, um, you know, we're very fortunate that we're able to you know, promote people internally. For example, uh, when we promoted Sarah, who will be my successor, to her job as VP of Clinical Services, you know, every position that we filled down the line was done internally. So, you know, we really focus on that. We have an internal and external leadership development program. It includes our hard, hard wine excellence program, which every manager goes through. And then there are – we've developed competencies. And each manager is responsible for taking those – what we call our up-and-comers – and working with them on an individualized plan to say, okay, where do you want to be in 10 years? In fact, I just met with a young woman here who, who has been, just been promoted internally about where her goals were and helping her to map out a strategy. But we also understand that we're probably not going to get every bit of talent from within. So about five years ago, our chairman, James Shepard, asked um, every um, senior manager to give a retirement date, an expected retirement date. And then, what we did was we went back and analyzed whether we could we had someone internally who those candidates were, what skills they needed to grow and in some of the jobs, we said we don't have anybody internally, so what we put in there were basically time frames for when we would begin to look at recruiting from outside
0: so what you're describing is succession planning, yeah. and you mentioned you mentioned early on you were getting ready to retire. You just mentioned you have a successor. Identified. What was that process like?
1: Well, we basically had, we've been working on this for the last three, four years. And again, we identified competencies. And we came to the, as we moved closer towards it, we had looked at engaging a, a search firm. We also, you know, I spent a lot of time out there externally and other rehab centers. And I'm a, a CARF surveyor, which is a national accreditation organization. And to be quite frank, I I just didn't see anybody more talented than Sarah, you know, than the person we had internally. And the second consideration, which was huge for us, was our culture. You know, you can bring, I've seen so many organizations where they develop a certain culture, they bring someone in from the outside, who has a whole different philosophy of what they ought to do. And they wreak havoc. You know, a lot of CEOs don't last, but you know, one to two years because they get sideways with their board. They don't understand the culture they're coming into. And so we said, why roll the dice and take that chance? So the board met. We did some psychological testing, you know, kind of talent testing for Sarah and looked at some of those issues. And the board made the decision to go ahead and promote her.
0: And what was her background?
1: Sarah started here 32 years ago as a physical therapist has worked her way up to, she was a supervisor and then the program director of the entire spinal cord injury program. About five years ago, she's promoted to basically our COO position and has done that for about the last five years. So So, what I tell people, we're trading up.
0: (laughs) As president and CEO, what keeps you up at night? What do you worry about?
1: Well, what, you know, what I worry about is, the, you know, always the, the safety of our patients. I mean, that's the number one concern. You know, I want to make sure that we provide, you know, the last thing you want to do is get that call that said, oh, my God, and, you know, guess what just happened? And knock on wood, we have never had one of those calls, and we're very, very proud of that. You know, I, I worry about the longevity of the organization, and I frankly worry about whether or not, you know, the healthcare world or the future will support the kind of culture that we've created here. And, uh, you know, I'm really proud of what we've done here. So, you know, it's all those things that I think they worry about. Can Do you have the right people in the right place? You know, but I really, have, in my professional life, I've learned a long time ago, I, I don't worry about work much at home. Huh. You know, I really have tried to separate my, you know, my personal life from here. I'm not even sure my wife knows. I, she knows where I work, but I'm not sure she knows what I do. But I think you got to be very, very careful about that, that, you know, you can be absolutely consumed by this. And, you know, when I first got out and took my first job at learning services, my wife was a nurse and she worked the evening shift. So we never saw each other. So, it, you know, I wouldn't get home till eight, eight thirty at night. And, and we had our first child, and I said, "Gosh, I'm never going to see this kid grow up." So, you know, I really and I really trying to reinforce that with our staff. In fact, we have a, a an unknown, unnamed senior manager here who spends too much time here, and I actually scored her down on her performance evaluation for spending too much time here. Kind of got her attention. Uh-huh. But you know, what we know is that people who are overworked, you know, workaholics aren't very effective. So. We really, really try to promote that work-life balance here. And that's so important with the millennials now, this new generation. I mean, they, that's been an extremely challenging group of people to work with and that, you know, that's almost imprinted on their genes is that work-life balance.
0: If you could go back to 1994 uh, uh, as you got ready to take the reins of, of Shepard as CEO, what, would you, what advice would you give your 1994 self?
1: Well, I'd probably, to be a better listener, that's something I've had to really work on in my career is that, you know, you, you have you think about it. I, I made You know, I'm, when you're the CEO of an organization, you've got 100,000 things on your mind. If someone comes in your office and they're telling you something that may not be in your top 10 of priority situations, you, you have to understand that that's the most important thing to them. Right. And so it took me a while to the point where I even had to. Um, how I set up a thing with my staff that if 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 they felt like they were losing me during a conversation, they would put one finger in the air to kind of prompt me to come back and remember. So you know that that's probably the one thing I would have worked on better was to to be a better listener.
0: What surprised you as you took on the role of CEO? So when you first took on the role of CEO. What what surprised well, you? What was different than you thought it would be?
1: Well, I mean, I thought that it it would be easier. You know, uh, I was coming into an organization that was relatively stable, but I was also coming into an organization that was pretty set in its ways. And, you know, when I got here in the first, uh, August, six months, we changed the name, we changed like, the logo, we added a brain injury unit, you know, so, I mean, there was things totally revamped the management structure. And so, you know, it, it, you, a lot of times organizations get complacent, and this one was a little bit complacent. And, you know, we we burned in effigy that this is the way we used to do it. I actually made a sign and it had a bonfire outside, and we burned that. Did you really? <laughs> as in, a, in a symbolic way. As yeah. uh, I don't want to hear that. This is the way we've always done it. So, uh, you know, it, it took a while to really, uh, you know, for example, we had no pay scales here. You know, people would, there was no top end of the pay range. And I'll never forget, I knew I was in the right place when we, we used to do this holiday talent show every year. And, and this, I'd only been here, I came in July of 94, and this would have been December of 94. A group of staff got up and sang to the Day, to the 12 days of Christmas and they started on the first day of Christmas Gary took from me <laughs> and they went through like two PDOs you know all these you know all these things and so I felt like if you know I've only been there six months and they felt comfortable enough to get up and make a joke out of it then I was in the right spot oh,
0: Nice. Well, let's, uh, let's transition and talk a little bit about leadership specifically if you could kind of encapsulate your leadership philosophy what, what would it be?
1: one word consistency okay i mean that to me is the most important thing you know you so many times you have people who you know the the worst thing you can do is have a have a leader you don't know what they're going to do what i what I, I tried to to do was to create a, an environment where one it, it get, we gave people an opportunity to make to help make decisions and help shape decisions now ultimately it's not a democracy i've got to make the final decision but I wanted them to understand the process. Like again, let's look at the data. Let's do this and that. The other thing is that they knew what, what decision I'd probably make, even if I wasn't here. So the, the consistency thing is is a huge part of that. And and I think people make leadership skills much more complicated than they need to be. I mean, you know, it's it's about treating people fairly. It's about you know, uh, reinf you know again reinforcing the behaviors that you want, getting to know people personally. I want to know who people's children are. Uh, you know, those kinds of things. And then you go to like a Stephen Covey workshop, and there, God, that's my worst nightmare. There's all these words like synergy. Define synergy for me in a behavioral right. way. Right. You know, nobody can do that. How do you translate that to? as a mentor to young people and say, okay, I want you to go out there and create some synergy. Hmm. You know, what the hell does that mean? (laughs) So just keep it simple, you know? And again, I'll go back to what I said before, you know, get people to do what you want them to do with a smile on their face. And that's really what we've tried to focus on here.
0: Yeah. So it sounds like kind of important characteristics, caring about people listening. How did you learn that? Where did you learn those skills? I mean, it sounds like you were kind of a natural leader. If that's, if that's well,
1: right. yeah, you know, I think a lot of it came from my, my the sports, you know my sports background, which made me a fairly disciplined person. Uh-huh. And I, I believe it or not, I was a center. So, you know, next to the quarterback, you know, the center is the leader. By They make all the the calls and, you know, get people in the huddle, do those kinds of things. The other thing that kind of shaped me, and this sounds going to sound weird, was, you know, the Boy Scouts. I was very active mm. in the Boy Scouts. I was a senior patrol leader of about 50, 60, 11-year-olds, which, it, you know, may be the hardest job I ever had in my life. But, you know, all those things kind of shaped through my life. It just seemed like whenever there was a challenge and there'd be a group of people, people would look at me and say, what do we do? And, you know, I just sort of felt comfortable doing that.
0: Can you give an example of a leadership lesson that maybe you had to learn the hard way?
1: Yeah, uh uh when i first came you know I, at the other in my position at wake i was um i kind of moved up through the ranks people knew me and, and they kind of adapted to my sense of humor what i had to learn here was whatever when i first came whatever i said people took literally so i had to be very very careful cuz you know i have a kind of a sarcastic sense of humor and uh, i may say something that uh, you know i mean i mean in a humorous way but it was amazing, after I'd been here the first couple of months, how many times people, the rumors would become, I'd said something up on the floor and that was going to happen. And <laughs> so I had to be very, very careful what I said out there because people were literally, you know, taking that to heart. It, you know, it, it, you, you underestimate what the power of your words are, I think, in a leadership position like this. You yeah. have to be very careful.
0: What do you look for when you're hiring leaders?
1: Well, we want someone who, we, who can, we feel the first and foremost, will they fit into our culture? And we do some kind of personality. We also do some behavioral interviewing kinds of things to, to, to look at that. We ask questions about their sense of humor. We, you know, what we, we have created some scenarios as, you know, an employee, you know, to look at their compassion. You know, an employee comes to you and their mother's dying and they can't work this weekend, and you absolutely have to have them. What do you do? How do you problem-solve through that, and what takes precedence? So we try to look for people that really kind of fit, fit our culture, that, one, are accountable. Two, they're compassionate. They're, they understand data and how to use data to make decisions, and, and, and they're just generally nice people.
0: You've mentioned data a number of times. How do you ensure that your leaders are using data?
1: Well, I mean, we have a scorecard. You know, we basically, our senior management team, our performance is judged by the board on a scorecard that we develop every year. It's kind of like a balanced scorecard model where we take the 10 most important things that, for example, uh... what's the goal of our employee internal employee satisfaction and we raise the bar on that every year what's our customer satisfaction what's employee turnover look like the we basically prioritize what those issues are that we want to be judged on and and then we use that data to to do it if if any manager wants to develop any kind of a new program they need to then we have a business plan format where they here's the data that's required here are the questions you need to answer before We even consider that. So we've tried to make data an integral part of of what we do.
0: Did you have mentors, a mentor or mentors earlier in your career that you look back on as as having really helped shape you?
1: Yeah, uh, there was uh, a couple people that I think I would look at. One was my advisor in college, Todd Risley. I mean, I think the guy was a genius. He, He was a very, very interesting character and... One of those people that was able to look at things in a very, very broad way, and and in a very kind of macro at a, you know a macro level, and and really look at problems both from social issues and and so he taught me to be a big thinker, and to look at the answer isn't always the, you know this minute thing that you might see or the first thing that comes to your mind. And then I worked with a guy named Doug Vinsel, who was at Wake Medical Center. And Doug uh, went on to be the CEO of a couple of local hospitals down in Raleigh. And, you know, and what Doug taught me was compassion. He was very much one of those guys that, you, you know, if an employee had an issue, the employee came first, would find a way to make that work and, 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 and work around it. So those, those are two people, I think, that, that really um, kind of shaped who I am.
0: If you were to kind of step back and say what do and answer this, what does a good mentor do?
1: Well, a mentor sets a good example, and you know in fact, you know I was just sitting here with this young woman today, and she before she left, she said, "You know you know i've been here for ten years, and what I most appreciate is that you 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 walk the walk and you set the example on that you know that you're that we see you as Another human being, not this kind of CEO guy who's intimidating or we need to be afraid when he comes in the room and things like that. so I mean, I think a mentor is someone who can, and, and can provide good good feedback. You know one of the biggest problems with, with, with how we manage people is that one, managers don't know how to give good feedback, and more importantly, we don't teach people how to take feedback. You know, so, you know, we really work hard here at, you know, making sure that feedback meets the guidelines of, of something that's going to improve what we want to do. The other thing we do is we, we, I think, being a good mentor is not waiting, you know, in, in healthcare, care. If you get two performance evaluations a year or feedback on your evaluation twice a year, a lot of places that's a lot. And what we try to do is really, really step that up. We have what we call high, medium, and low performers, where at least three times a year, every manager's meeting with their employees, and if they're a high performer, they want to re-recruit them. You know, we want you to be here. What can we do to make that happen? If they're a medium performer, how can we get you to be a high performer? And if they're a low performer, you got 30 days to make this work, or we're going to have to make a change, and here's the goals and competencies we need you to do. So creating that kind of a feedback loop, I think is is a very, very important part of what a mentor should do.
0: Do your, so do you do each of your leaders actually sit down with their employees and a couple times a year and and tell them, Hey, you're, you're in one of these three categories. Does everybody know where they sit?
1: Yes. That's, that's an important part of what we do because, you know, we're a pretty laid back organization. If you come in you know, there are no uniforms. Uh, our therapists—they're up on crawling on mats with patients. They dress in jeans. It's—you know—that part is the family atmosphere. But it's not, and it's not an organization that tolerates mediocrity well. So, you know, we want you to be accountable for meeting the goals and objectives of what we want you to do. But we want to make that a, as pleasant an experience as we possibly can.
0: How do you make sure that your managers are really doing that? Because I've seen in different organizations, you know, everybody winds up being a high performer, and that's just not true. So, I mean, how do you make sure that that, that inflation doesn't happen?
1: Well, one, um, we will not accept – if we basically look at kind of the bell-shaped curve. And everybody – we will actually counsel managers who come in with everybody at the same score. And we force them to make a decision. Do you th- uh, and we will actually send back their evaluations until they do make a decision because nobody can be the same. right? You know, there has to be a distribution there that that is differentiating between your high performance and your low performance. And so we really force that issue and make them do that. You know, say, we're not going to accept this until you get within those parameters.
0: And do you have a some sort of... You you, mentioned a, you you know some sort of bell curve. So do you actually say, and, and you have to identify the low ones, and we expect you to have low ones. Is there, is right. there an expectation? And there? if
1: there's someone who, who comes in two years in a row and doesn't meet the basic expectations of the job, then there's a the, they go into it, a corrective action program okay. because there's no excuse. I mean, if you've been there two years, you know either we and the other thing we you need to understand is a big part of whether an employee succeeds is is did you do your job as a manager right so you know, one of the things we do with every new employee is at 60 days we bring all the new employees back in and the first question we ask them is how did we do it's called connect the dots because we want to make sure one but before you can discipline an employee you got to understand did you give them all the training they needed to do the job? Did you give them the tools they needed to do the job? Right. And have, you know, have they been adequately prepared to do that job? Because that's a management responsibility. So we want to make sure that that first 60 days that we've done our part. So, you know, we invite them to say, you know, what didn't work well? What did you, is there something you didn't get? So that Because it's like a marriage, you know, that first 60 days are really, really important. And if we, if we let a good employee walk out the door, then, you know, we really didn't do our job.
0: Do you have a formal mentorship program at, uh, at Shepard uh, at all?
1: Yes. We, we, well, what we do is we have, again, I referred you back to those up-and-comers and those yeah. succession planning kinds of tools. So each of those people is, has a, a formal mentor who puts the education plan together with them, the continuing education plan. Now, you can be mentored by anybody, I mean, in the organization, sure. you know, you're welcome to come to me and say, here's a skill I would like to learn, you know, what can we do, and how, do we, how would we do that, and, you know, and I'm more than happy to do some of those things. If you had
0: to pick one book that early careerists who are interested in being leaders in, in a healthcare organization should read, what would you recommend?
1: I would recommend uh, Hardwiring Excellence by Quinn Studer because I think it provides, in a very simple methodology and in a very uh, understandable way, ways that you can improve your organization. And we've tried some of the techniques that are in there, and they work. Things like thank-you notes. You know, we have a a culture that we're very big on thank-you notes. I write probably about four or five, a year and you ask about how do you ensure how senior managers do the things you want them to do we have a rounding log where it's computerized where whenever a manager does a rounding session with an employee they're required to go in and fill it out and it talks about uh, okay you know what's working well you know what do we need to improve is there anybody who needs to be recognized that goes into a computer file We monitor that uh, at every uh, quarterly management meeting. We put by name the managers up and who's filled out, who's done, how many roundings and where they've done them. And then it also is a feedback loop so that if someone's recognized for good behavior and and it's somebody who kind of reports up through me or they will actually send me a copy of that, it automatically goes to to me. So the next time I'm out on the floor, I can see that employee and say, hey, you know, Sarah told me about this great way you handled this very difficult family. You know, I really appreciate you taking the extra time to do that. And it gives me an opportunity to provide some meaningful kind of immediate and sincere reinforcement. So, you know, having that accountability loop is really important.
0: So you mentioned it right at the beginning that, that and we've kind of mentioned it a couple of times, you're coming toward the end of your career. What are you going to reflect back on, you think, and look at as the most meaningful part of, of the work you've done.
1: I'm just really, really proud of the fact that we've been able to, you know, help. So, you know, I, I look back at the, again, I'm a data kind of guy. Yeah. You know, the numbers of people went home. But I think the thing that makes me happiest is when, and this is going to sound really, really weird, but when a family comes back and they come back to the center, and that this happens all the time, it's pretty amazing. They'll come back, and the first person they go see is the person who cleaned their floor or really? cleaned their room.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and what that means to me as a manager is that that, per, you know, that that family created a relationship with that person that was meaningful enough that that's, they wanted to seek them out, which means that the, the, our job of driving that culture down may have stuck. You know, and that, you know, it was a meaningful relationship that was created there, which was what we want our staff to do. So those are the things. The, the other thing that makes me happy is when people tour through here and they say, God, everybody seems happy. And, you know, they, people think that happens just naturally, but it doesn't. So uh, I think it's really, really, um, you know, an important thing.
0: Well, that sounds like a nice place to end this at. So thank you so much for your time today. I've really enjoyed hearing your story.
1: Okay, Mark, I've enjoyed talking to you. This is, you know, when you can kind of lay out your life in a short period of time, it's kind of cathartic in a certain way. So uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to do that.
0: You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire, and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.